In this episode of Fictional Hangover, we talk about a litany of characters, casual murder, and lesbian necromancers in space in our discussion of Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. everybody, welcome to Fictional Hangover, a podcast about young adult and new adult and sometimes other books, series, authors, voice actors, and illustrators that is full of spoilers. I'm Amanda the Ninth. And I'm Claire the Ninth. And today we're going to discuss Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Mia. Standard disclaimer. If you haven't read this book, oh my god, it's ridiculous. You have to go and read it. Please remember that Fictional Hangover is all about spoilers. If you haven't read or listened and don't want to be spoiled, stop listening to us and go read or listen to the book. Then come back. If you haven't done this but want to pretend that you have, or if you don't care about spoilers, or if you just like the show so much that you don't care about any of that, then listen up. Also... Go and listen to it. It's Moira Quirk. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Witch! It's narrated by Moira Quirk, so you've got to listen to it because it's fantastic. We love her. I feel like that's a, I'm just that's an, an additional <laughs> nice. Scully's behind me. He's returned. He's wearing his aviators. He loved the book as well. Good. Five stars on Goodreads. Ten out of ten. Very good. Yeah, he wanted to join in, especially because it's like Halloween. Yeah, week of course. Up, so and I mean, this course. is full of spooky skeletons. So he related hard. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Okay. So that's my it, like background information that's your background info okay yeah my my other background information is that a skull face really doesn't suit glasses no <laughs> i also feel like my eyebrows are really really dark and that also i, I look like I a put my makeup on i think i put my makeup on at the wrong time like when i was raising an eyebrow at one mm-hmm. point but you can really see the ambidextry and yeah the, you have you have eyebrow. amazing eyebrows my eyebrows are just are shocked I can wiggle my ears as well, independently, which apparently is very rare. There's my hidden talent. Not so hidden anymore. It's on the internet. That's amazing. I don't have any of those talents. But I do have some background info that I found on Vox.com. Cool. It's in the non-literal sense. Okay. So the interviewer was talking about what people thought about the relationships in the book. (laughs) And Tamsin had this to say. Oh, is it they're messed up? Yes. She says, "Oh, this is so fraught though. Way back when I had just finished the book and I had started sending it out to agents, I got a super nice agent who was really excited about it. And they finished the book and they're like, "Cool, really interesting. Really liked that sisterly relationship." And I was like, "Oh, no, it's gay." Because, I mean, Harry and Gideon, for whatever else it's worth, is explicitly homoerotic. Is it romantic? Are those two things necessarily tied? How could you say sisterly? Did they... It's like historians. It's like if you go to a museum and they go, Oh, look at this picture of these two women who live together in platonic companionship. No, they'd be gay. Yeah, gay. Those two men, the Vikings, I think they were, or something, they found their grave and they were in a very intimate position, but placed. Oh no, they're just sharing, they're just birds. No, they be gay. (laughs) You know what? Be gay, do cry. Yeah. I feel like 
Gideon needs to have said that at some point in her life. Gideon wakes up, chooses violence, is gay and does cry. Yeah, I think that's accurate. So I'm really glad that Patty, my former library director, because she got fired, everyone. Motherfuckers. I'm so glad that she forced me to read this. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Patty. Thanks for everything you've ever done in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Introducing me to Murderbot. Loved it. Yes. Which is also like, you know, if you if you like murder, but you'll like yeah, this. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I I would say thank you as well to Patty. However, this has been on my radar for ages. But because it's fairly long, it's it's a chunk of a it's book. It's very long. The audio is what, 21 hours? I don't hours? know. It's bonkers. It's it, very long. It, like normal speed. It's quite long. I've ha- I, be, doing the podcast, I have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm what i can listen mm-hmm. to or read in my spare time and it's just i've not been able to which is a shame but you know we've done it now and what i would like to add as well that now we're in season six we're introducing lit to the party yes and you know gideon the ninth is an example for me of being late to the party you know it's a few years old people have raved about it before it's done really well there's you know there's two sequels but we're only just now picking yeah. it up so this is a fantastic example of being there to the party and it's a fantastic opportunity having that um for us to go you know what this was out years ago and i really wanted to read it but i didn't get the chance yeah. can we cover it and we're like uh hell's yeah me. of course we can also, it's the one that we're going to talk about in our book club discussion this time, which that's going to be a little bit different as well. We're not doing a Zoom mm-hmm. meeting this time. We're just going to do like a chat. So yeah. find that on probably on our Facebook. There's still going to be an event. Join the chat in the event and we'll have all of our would you rather questions. And you can answer all of those and tell us what you think about this book. Well, we might post it on other socials as well, on Instagram and threads. And That's you know, true, but we can only just we can only really chat but, in one place. Yes, but the chat will be located in one specific yes. place because if we haven't too many, the conversation just doesn't yep. happen. All right, well, let's, let's get going good. because, as you mentioned, this book is 100 years long. <laughs> so that means we're going to have a really good summary. Yeah. Gideon Nav has tried to escape her indentured servitude in the ninth house like 87 times. She thinks she's got it this time and is semi-patiently waiting for a shuttle to take her off planet to be conscripted into service because she's not a necromancer. And if all the titty magazines she has are any indication, she's definitely not a nun. The bells start ringing, and two of her trainers, Iglaminate and Crux, both come looking for her. But no, she's not going. She's getting away. She thinks of all the people and skeletons rushing around now that the muster bells are ringing and how almost none of them are her age because of the 201 children who lived in the ninth house. There are only three left. One is a boy many years older. And the other is Harrowhawk Nonagesimus, Reverend Daughter, Lady of the Ninth House. And she seems to get off on torturing Gideon. 
And now she's summoning her. Fuck. Do you know what? We don't kick shit. We don't kick shit. Carol obviously knows she treats Gideon like trash. She's an orphan from another house, not even part of the ninth. But now Gideon is shocked to find that she is offering her her freedom with a parchment about her release signed in blood and everything. That's like hashtag big deal. All Gideon has to do is go to the muster call. Harold will keep the shuttle there waiting. <laughs> nope, nah, nah dog, not going to do it. Gideon has forged enough good paperwork and figure out everything she needs to do to get the shuttle here to pick her up so she's fine going her own way. Then Harrow offers something better. Training. A title. A real life. Ooh, that sounds, um... Interesting, but... Nah, nah, dog. Nah. Okay, Harrow has one final offer. Win against her in a fair fight, take the signed letter and leave now, no worries. Or lose against her in a fair fight, go to the muster call, but then still take the signed letter and leave, no worries. Uh, fine. Fine. Sounds like a great fine. deal. Don't trust great deals. Especially when they're coming from Harrow. Harrow removes all her bone jewellery and bone accessories, so she won't be able to summon any skeletons, which even for a necromancer, she's really, really good at. Gideon grabs her sword, ready to literally kick Harrow's ass for all the terrible shit she's put her through. But then, as they begin to fight, Harrow starts summoning skeletons from all over the place. That little bitch snuck down the night before, dug a bunch of holes, and put bones in them. <laughs> Gideon can't take down all the skeletons because there's a ton of them, and she loses. Obviously and violently. She threatens Harrow to tell everyone everything she knows. To tell everyone all about the torture. To tell everyone that one thing that Gideon knows about, but no one else does. But none of this works. Fuck. As she was thoroughly destroyed by the skeletons, Aglamine and Crux drag her to the summons. In what is basically a cathedral full of bones, some living, some not, some animated, some not, Gideon watches as Harrow reads a summons in front of several important people from the Ninth House, including her parents, Palomera and Primarch, who have taken a vow of silence and click-clack prayer beads while their daughter speaks. Is it me or is that really eerie? I kind of... click-clack and prayer beads. I kind of like it. It's a bit nunnish. Not keen. Anywho. The summons is from the Emperor, the Necrolord, Prime, the King of the Nine Renewals, the Resurrector, and requires each first child of each house to go to their canon house to train to be a lector, and they must bring their cavalier. Harold's cavalier is a round mama's boy who is dreadful with a sword. Said mama wails for her precious son not to be taken from her. Oh, God. After the summons is read and all the skeletons file out, Gideon laughs and laughs. Gideon is shocked that Harrow has reanimated the corpses of her parents and paraded them around in front of everyone like mummy puppets. <laughs> she knew they were dead, of course. They've been dead for like 10 years. And she also knew that Harrow has been pretending that they're still alive, but still, it's hilarious. This summons is ridiculous because that cavalier is terrible, but none of this is going to be Gideon's problem soon. 
Oh, wait. Yes, it is. A shuttle that's been waiting for her has just been knowingly burgled by the Cavalier and his mommy. And now Gideon has to pretend to be Harrow's Cavalier because Harrow has known for a week that Gideon was planning on leaving and now she's punishing her. <laughs> Aglamine is in on this plan and doesn't like it, but she's going to teach Gideon how to properly be a Cavalier and she's going to do it very, very quickly. Gideon is furious, but Harrow promises, and Iglamine makes her promise to keep her promise, that when Harrow is a lictor, and they're both famous in the first house, Gideon will be released. Now, she just has to fake it, which requires her painting her face like a skeleton, because that's what all the necromancers and cavaliers of the Nine House have done for forever. Oh, fucking fine, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. <laughs> After six months of grueling training, it is time for Harrow and Gideon to leave in a space shuttle to the first house. When they arrive, they are greeted by a frail priest in white robes who prefers to be called Teacher. The other houses arrive too, and then one of them collapses and Gideon rushes to her aid. Her name is Dulcinea, Septimus of the seventh house, and her cavalier, Protestilius, holds his sword at Gideon. Dulcinea, who, is, who has a wasting disease and shouldn't be old, older than 25, like, laughs and laughs. The ninth house can challenge the seventh now and they'll probably win. She seems absolutely delighted, but no one will be fighting each other just yet. They just arrived. Wipe your shoes on the mat first. No. Get off, get off your shuttle and put your sunglasses on and then you can fight. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All the cavaliers and necromancers gather, and Teacher gives each of the cavaliers an iron ring and some information, but not much information, like, at all. Teacher says that the lictors were not born immortal, but came to this place and earned it. And now, through trials and challenges, everyone here has that opportunity as well. They will be given everything they need to survive and servants to wait on them, but they must not use the communication network. They are here now until they succeed or are sent home or are murdered. Spoiler alert. Lots of murder. The only real instruction is that they never open a locked door unless they have permission. When asked how they train for lictorhood, teacher answers that he doesn't know. He's not a lictor. And with that, he welcomes them to Canaan House, their new home. I really enjoyed I, I don't it. know. Ooh. I'm not a lictor. What? The first morning in the first house finds Gideon waking alone. Harrow has gone off to probably do whatever she's supposed to be doing here and left Gideon with several notes of instruction, which include to put on her skill face paint and not to talk to anyone, and also one that says she stole the iron ring, and then another half a dozen to say uh, not to talk to anyone. Yes, of course. Her. There's a lot of notes, <laughs> and they're, none of them are very nice. No. Skull on, Gideon goes out to explore and finds a dining hall where she served her meal by a skeleton. 
cavaliers of the fourth and fifth house are here as well, but they seem oddly terrified or in awe of her, especially when she doesn't speak thanks to Harrow's nought. After a meal, she continues exploring and finds a million doors all over the place, one hidden behind a tapestry which Gideon hides again before leaving. She comes upon the cavalier, Nebrius, the twin necromancers, Coronabeth and Ianthe, from the third house, who are all beautiful and golden and petulant. They're complaining about what they're supposed to be doing, and if it's all some sort of puzzle, then one of the twins spots Gideon and quietly warns her not to mess with them. After a lunch of some odd leaves, which Gideon realises must be a salad, still without hero. Gideon continues exploring and finds the beautiful Dulcinea prettily and frailly lounging in a chair and asks Gideon to assist her. Not being able to speak, either by Dulcinea's hypnotic beauty or because, you know, Harrow forbade her to, Gideon listens as Dulcinea prattles on about wanting to be a part of the ninth house when she was young and dying so she could die prettily. But then... She heard about the face paint and changed her mind. (laughs) Dulcinea has known forever that she was going to die young, but she's still here being gorgeous. She asks Gideon to stand and draw her sword, which she does, but apparently not as perfectly as one who has always used a rapier should. And Dulcinea somehow knows that Gideon typically uses a heavier two-handed sword. Oh, Shit. Does she know that Gideon isn't really the Cavalier of the Ninth? Dulcinea's Cavalier, Protesilaus, arrives then, giving Gideon time to very nearly literally run away. (laughs) Some days pass and Gideon sees Harrow once or twice, but they don't speak. After a meal, Gideon finds herself being dragged off to a duel with some of the Cavaliers of the other houses. She wins against the kind and charming Magnus of the fifth house almost immediately, but technically loses against the third, Nebrius, when he disarms her. But she continues to fight and punches him, which makes her the better and stronger fighter. And it also makes her a badass. It does. Even more days pass, and this time Gideon hasn't seen Harrow at all. Her bed hasn't been slept in. Gideon decides she's going to find her and sets off looking. Finally, she encounters two voices, which turn out to be the cavalier and necromancer of the sixth house, Camilla and Palamides. There's a sort of barrier between them that temporarily eats Gideon's hand away. Uh, yikes. But then Camilla notices her and attacks. Camilla is even more badass than Gideon right now, but Palamides calls her off and apologizes, knowing that Gideon is looking for Harrow. The sixth house seems to have been tracking her, maybe. They come to a door with blood splattered in front of it, and Gideon freaks out and speaks, finally, and she's pissed. She tries to open the door, but can't until the sixth house opens it with the iron ring that they were given when they arrived. It's a key ring! Inside, they find Harrow in a bone cocoon. Mm-hmm. Palamides medically checks her and finds she's probably just exhausted and dehydrated and tells Gideon that she needs to rest. She also tells her that she and Harrow should be working together. Ha, <laughs> that chance. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> 
When they get back to their room, Gideon tells Harold she's bored and not doing a good job at pretending to be a cavalier and whatever Harold is doing down in dusty old basements going to get her killed. So Gideon is coming with her from now on. Harold rejects this and then explains what she's been doing. She has searched all over Cannon House and she has found and mapped hundreds of doors, only six of which are locked. She has discovered that whoever was here before, presumably the necromancers who became lictors, left behind their research and odd sorts of trials. Harold has found one and is desperately trying to pass it, but has lost nearly 200 skeletons in doing so because she can't see what she's facing. As they look at the map, Gideon spots a symbol that she recognises as being on the door she found and hid. Well, well, well. It's good that they're working together now. They might actually get somewhere. Wow, teamwork. Harrow and Gideon make it to the room that Harrow found with the trial. Gideon goes past a door into a room while Harrow stays outside. With Gideon inside instead of a skeleton, they will soon learn what keeps destroying all of Harrow's minions. It's a giant skeletal construct holding bones that look like swords that constantly rebuilds itself when it takes any damage. They keep resetting the trial and Harrow sends more and more and more skeletons in to fight until Gideon decides that she's going to go in and fight instead. Remarkably, while Gideon fights the construct, Harrow can see through her eyes and feel as she's fighting. Gideon comes out of the room, still unsuccessful, but Harrow now knows how to beat the trial. She's got to use Gideon's body. They literally have to fight together. But first, Harrow needs to rest. Upon waking later, Harrow and Gideon find they've been invited to an anniversary party for Magnus and Abigail of the Fifth House. Harrow doesn't want to go because she thinks everyone's going to be poisoned and that she's going to lose time in facing the trial. But they go. Some are happy to be there, some are not, some eat way too much, some are bedazzled by Gideon and her biceps. (laughs) Dulcinea and Gideon spend some time together, but then Harold gathers Gideon and they go off to face the trial again, worried because she overheard that the fifth house has started and will beat them. They travel down to the trial room and finally Gideon is allowed to fight for real. As she attacks the construct, Harrow can see through her eyes and tells her where to strike. Then Gideon can see glowing orbs at each point, Harrow tells her to hit. The construct is finally destroyed and a little door opens to reveal a key. And as they retrieve it, Harrow compliments Gideon. That's really nice, but also shocking. Shocking. Before this niceness can last too long, they come across the dead bodies of Magnus and Abigail. All the necromancers gather a little while later to try to resurrect them, but no one is successful until the eighth house arrives. Silas and Colum are a soul-siphoning pair, and Silas, draining Colum, manages to raise Abigail for a moment before Teacher arrives yelling for them to bring the bodies and to get to safety before something else fills their corpses. That's terrifying. (laughs) They're able to store the bodies in a sort of refrigerator. Everyone argues about what's going on and about all the keys to the rooms, which some didn't know about and some did and already have a few. Some want to work together and some don't, but they all kind of agree to let the others know if they're going to face something terrible in one of the rooms or if they'll be 
you know, attacked by evil ghosts or whatever it was that killed Magnus and Abigail, and Teacher warned them of taking their bodies. Harrow and Gideon leave to go through the door that matches the key they found, which goes to the hidden door that Gideon found. The rooms beyond look like a lab, but have a place for two people to rest, presumably a necromancer and their cavalier. They search the lab, and Harrow realises that the two people who shared this room a long, long time ago are the ones who created the tribe they just faced, and they have left instructions on how to pass it and all the science and magic behind it. Harrow takes copious notes while Gideon looks around. She finds a small note and puts it in her pocket. She feels sad about Magnus dying, which Harrow finds strange because they barely knew each other. Gideon says it's because he was nice to her and didn't even know her. Harold then melts a little and it's finally a little nice and she decides she's going to earn Gideon's trust, which weirds Gideon out. <laughs> Back in their room, Gideon remembers the note, which is nearly incomprehensible, but it has her name on it. It's very weird. Ooh. Ooh. Everyone probably rem- just just keep that note in your pocket until probably the next book. At least. (laughs) The next day, Harrow and Gideon plan to move on to the next trial, but before they can, they are approached by Dulcinea, who asks them for help. She, in her weak and frail state, simply cannot pass the next trial because it seems to completely dissolve the body. (laughs) Kind of like what Gideon encountered when she found the sixth house following Harrow. Dulcinea asked the sixth house for help, but they refused. And then she was going to ask the fifth, but, you know, they're murdered. The trial involves siphoning life, similar to what Siphons and Column do. But it's not exactly the same. Gideon agrees to be siphoned with little fuss, and Harrow begins draining her life away to pass the trial. It's horribly painful having your life drained away. But Harrow is able to pass the trial, get the key, and return, completely naked because all of her clothes were melted off, before Gideon dies. Or violently passes out. Don't worry, she's not dead. <laughs> just casual murder. <clears throat> she wakes up just a little bit later to find Harrow asking why Dulcinea wants to be a lictor because she doesn't want to die. Which is fair, considering she's so sickly. Harrow doesn't like Dulcinea or protest Lace. And Gideon doesn't know why, because she seems to have a pretty serious crush on Dulcinea and her cavalier seems to be a regular old burly protector. Oh, burly protector. They somehow get back to their room and Harrow is upset at Gideon for so easily giving her life away for the trial and she's mad that the trials even exist and says she's got to figure out how to become a lictor before... Not finishing her sentence. Damn it. It's not helpful. No. The next day, Gideon finds notes from Harrow similar to the first one she left, that she has the keys and she's out and to not come find her. But these are a little nicer than the first ones and include food and a message that she's sending the sixth house to physically check her over. Camilla arrives and is pretty startled that Gideon is alive and not brain damaged. I mean, is she though? Is she? It's hard to say. 
The two go to the dining hall and find everyone there discussing the keys and how there's not enough for everyone to have a full set. So they're either going to have to work together to gather the keys and pass the trials or, well, fight and kill each other. (laughs) Casual, casual, more casual murder. It's fine. The seventh house has already been challenged. Palamides then calls for Gideon and Camilla to join him in the refrigerator with Magnus's body. The sixth house's necromancy magic is kind of like reading the thoughts and objects corpses have touched, so he's trying to find out how Magnus came to have his key. While this is happening, they discuss the working together or killing each other thing, and then discover that Magnus and Abigail didn't fall to their deaths as everyone originally thought, that they are covered in tiny mixed bone fragments, which means something that is unsaid as they suddenly realise one of the teens from the fourth house is eavesdropping. God damn For some time after this, Harrow does not return and Gideon worries. But then, randomly, Harrow is back, sleeping in her bed. Gideon wanders around and exercises and eats meals and stuff while Harrow is asleep. But then she's approached by one of the teens from the fourth house. Someone is dead, and the necromancer from the fourth, Isaac, asks for help from the ninth house and the third. Gideon and Coronabeth go with the fourth. They, plus, like, everyone else eventually, rush off to the incinerator, where the other from the fourth, Jean-Marie, is wailing that someone is dead. There's something grisly in the incinerator, but no one knows who it is. That's an image, isn't mm-hmm. it? Later, it starts to rain and Gideon finds Dulcinea passed out and nearly drowned on the terrace. She was out sunbathing and probably reading romance novels as normal, but the rain started. Poor Cecilius never came for her, so she tried to walk back inside and fell. Now she's being cared for by teacher, but poor Cecilius is missing. Back investigating the incinerator, all the necromancers who are there decide the remains are too old to belong to Protestinus and there are remains from two bodies in there. They have no idea who they are. This is all puzzling and gets everyone upset. There will be a search for Protestinus, but not in anyone's personal rooms. Teacher trusts them to look in their own spaces themselves. Everyone is still upset and the second house begins demanding everyone turn their keys over to them for safekeeping, which, yeah, no. 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 No one is going to do that. No. The eighth house has taken Dulcinea's keys for safekeeping, which everyone finds dubious. Then the dual demands start. The second challenges the sixth, thinking that Camilla and Palamides are weak, but the sixth kicks the second's ass. Then the third challenges the sixth. The twins of the sixth bicker about this, Coronabeth not wanting Nibirius to do it, but Elanthe insisting that he does. Then Harrow says Gideon will fight for Camilla. Then uh, Janine Marie wants to fight Nibirius too. Basically, everyone wants to fight everyone, but no one does. Battle Royale this shit. Yeah, really. I mean, who would win? We need to we need to talk about that. Remember that for later. I will attempt. So everyone leaves except the sixth, fourth, and ninth houses. They seem to be the only ones who want to work together. 
Palamides has deduced a couple of things. One, that there are only eight keys, essentially one key for each house. And based on all the key bickering, there's only one left. And two, that each of the theorems discovered in each room will stack together to create a mega theorem, presumably how to become a lictor. Regardless of this, they all think that Protesilaus must have the final key, so they decide that they need to find him. But they also need to keep Dulcinea safe. Palamides, Camilla, and Harrow will stay with Dulcinea while Gideon, Jean-Marie, and Isaac try to find Protesilaus. They travel down to the facilities room where everyone started their trials. As they look around, they see, written on the wall in blood, death to the fourth house. Uh, that's not good. No. Then they're attacked by a giant construct of bones and tentacles and teeth, which is amazing. Isaac does not survive the fight. So Gideon grabs Jean-Marie and runs to the laboratory room she found behind the tapestry and locks them inside. Jean-Marie is devastated and finally rests, and Gideon does too, but only for a few moments. She jolts awake, not long after falling asleep, to find Jean-Marie's body speared through with giant bone shards. Written above her in blood is Sweet Dreams. Oh, that's nice. Oh, no, it's not. Womp womp. Casual murder? Casual murder. Somehow, Gideon doesn't know. She and Jean-Marie and Isaac's bodies are back with everyone else. Gideon is feeling particularly shitty and is lamenting about everyone's deaths with Dulcinea, who talks about the feeling of constantly dying since she's so ill. While they talk, they start holding hands and then there's more bemoaning and Dulcinea figures out that Gideon is not actually a cavalier. Then the 8th house arrives and also say that they know this, that they know that Gideon isn't even from the ninth house at all and that she's an orphan. They invite her to tea and will tell her what they know. Ooh, mm-hmm. spill the tea over tea. Mm-hmm. Back with the 6th house, Harrow, Gideon, Palamides and Camilla talk about the mega theorem again and how all of these challenges are terrible. The sixth house doesn't seem to think lictorhood is worth everything that is happening. Talk moves back to the keys and how there's one left that maybe the third house has, and Palamides says he's worried about them because he can't figure them out. Both twins seem to be middling necromancers, but one is more dominant than the other. Palamides then says he needs help picking a lock. He offers all his theorem information to Harrow if she'll show him the map she created and help him with the lock. They go to the room with the lock, presumably the lock that the third has the only key for, and Harrow discovers that what is blocking the lock is similar to the theorem where she had to drain Gideon's energy. So Gideon offers it to her again, and they're able to unstopper the lock. Palamides seems to think this isn't very tasteful. They split up here, and Palamides hints to Gideon about taking care of Dulcinea, which makes Harrow bristle. How many times did I say lock in that, like, one sentence? Was it, like, 13 times? It lost all meaning. It lost all meaning. Lock, 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 lock. Ah! (laughs) 
Harrow forbids Gideon from spending any more time with Dulcinea, claiming she's dangerous. But Gideon doesn't believe this because she's so, so frail. Gideon nearly punches Harrow, but is afraid if she starts, she won't be able to stop. All the resentment that Gideon used to have for Harrow comes rushing back, and Harrow heaps it on by basically telling Gideon she's worthless, and that she doesn't even remember she exists half the time, which is... A sick bird. That is. That's, that's that so is hurtful. So painful. Gideon tells Harold she hates her and says "fuck you" a bunch of times. Gideon asks to be released from Harold's service if she's so worthless that she'd rather work for a dying Dulcinea, but Harold refuses and tells her to go take a nap. You know that that's like on top of being sick bird, just shut up and go and take. She's gonna take a nap. It's like, bitch. Gideon is furious, which never leads to good decision making. She's not going to take a nap, is she? I mean, she should. She would probably she feel should. better. I'll take the nap. Always take, take a nap. nap. Always take a nap. Always take a nap. It's a life lesson. <laughs> Later, Gideon goes to the rooms of the eighth house, where Silas tells her that the shuttle she was supposed to leave the ninth house in, that the actual cavalier and his mommy left in had a bomb in it and it exploded <laughs> wah, wah. Casual, casual murder murder then he questions her as to why a house would do such a thing and why a house would kill 200 children leaving behind only gideon and harrow she has no idea then he demands she turn over her keys because he will not allow the ninth house to obtain lichterhood if they would do such terrible things. Colum told her upon her arrival to their rooms that she would face no violence, but now Silas seems to be ready to contradict that. Colum tells her to leave because it's likely that one of them will be dying if she doesn't. Everybody's so freaking rude, aren't Yeah, they? and there will be some casual murder. Gideon leaves but doesn't want to return to her rooms with Harold, so she wanders around to the training room and finds Teacher complaining about hating water and people dying and then finds Corona Beth, who was training with a sword. She says she wanted to fight against Gideon, even though she is a necromancer, so they spar. But then Nibiris comes in yelling. Gideon leaves and finally goes back to her rooms. Harrow isn't there. So Gideon looks through her stuff and finds in a box, not very well hidden in her closet, the head of Prostelius. She takes to the sixth house and vomits a lot. <laughs> so much vomit. <laughs> Palamides investigates the head while Gideon freaks out about Harrow being a killer, vowing to be the one to take her out. Gideon knows... She's a loud casual murder. <laughs> Is she though? Everybody is. Gideon knows that Harrow is terrible. She's been terrible all Gideon's life. But then she was responsible. She, Gideon, was responsible for Harrow's parents' deaths. So, you know, maybe it's just casual murder. Shrug. 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 <laughs> Gideon tells Palamides about Harrow finding a locked door in the ninth house when she was just a kid that was never meant to be opened. Well, she opened it. Gideon went to tell Harrow's parents, who also seemed to hate Gideon, and then Harrow arrived 
and Gideon left. She hoped to overhear Harrow getting into lots of trouble, but she heard nothing. So she opened the door to find that Harrow's parents had hanged themselves, and Harrow was also standing there with a rope. Palamides tells Gideon that just because she tattled on Harrow doesn't mean she's responsible for her parents' deaths. But Gideon struggles to believe that. <laughs> Don't be a knock. Camilla arrives soon, cheered to Harold, and they begin discussing Bastilius's head. They decide that it has been dead for quite some time, so they score to speak to Dulcinea. And then everyone else shows up. Dulcinea explains that her house is very good at creating beguiling corpses and that since she's so ill, her house created a strong cavalier to protect her. Dulcinea starts coughing and nearly dying and Palamides gently cares for her, kisses her hand and holds it carefully. Teacher asks how long she has left and Palamides thinks weeks at most. Dulcinea seems to giggle at this, but remains barely lucid. As everyone leaves the sick room, Palamides assures Gideon that if Harrow was really going to do anything to become a lictor, meaning madamly kill lots of people in casual murder style, she'd have done it by now. Gideon follows Harrow into the hallway and is then led to a giant saltwater pool in the training room. Harrow sets skeletons as said trees, asks Gideon to join her in the pool, and then tells her a lot of stuff that she should have told her a long time ago. Harrow's family has a secret, but because Gideon found the head in her closet, she was afraid that Gideon wouldn't trust her anymore. <laughs> Which is, you know, pretty fair assessment. <laughs> she didn't know that the fourth teens would be killed and why Gideon wasn't killed too, and she doesn't know who's doing all the killings, but she thinks it could be the sixth house. They're the smartest, after all, but they have zero reason to casual murder. She just doesn't know. She just doesn't know who's doing all the murders. Gideon then asks about the 200 children, and the story is gruesome. Harold would not exist without the deaths of those children. Her parents sacrificed all all of them in order to have Harold, who is apparently a perfect necromancer. But, you know, more on that in a second. Why did they keep Gideon alive if they killed everyone else? They didn't. She was supposed to be sacrificed too. She was poisoned right along with the others, but she didn't die. And nobody knows why. <laughs> Stubbornness, knowing Gideon. Even as a baby. <laughs> She's like, fuck all so you then, guys! Fuck off with your poison. Not today, I'm having a nap. So then Harold basically tortured her because she felt like garbage because everyone else was dead, which is not a good reason to torture someone. But really, is there ever a good reason to do that? I mean, I can think of one, but we don't kick shit. <laughs> okay, back to the perfect necromancer bit of the story. The day that Gideon told Harrow's parents about her opening the locked door, that's a door that no one is supposed to open because it apparently will start the apocalypse. Wah, wah, wah. But Harrow did it. Wah, wah. 
Then she traveled down the corridor beyond it, which was packed with so many evil necromancer things that she should have died, but she survived too. At the end of the corridor, encased in ice, is a girl with a sword. Harrow wants to be around if this icy girl ever wakes up, which is why she didn't hang herself along with her parents that day. Gideon thinks it's funny that Harrow has a crush on the ice girl. And now, stories and secrets told, she and Harrow are closer than ever. Which wasn't very close, really. Mm, No. But it's fine, because they're close now. It's fine. Yay. The next day, the sixth house and the ninth house go to open a door that none of them have the key for, which is technically against the one rule, but, you know, whatever. Palamedes has passed the trial and held the key, so that basically means he deserved it, especially since he has the great power of reading objects, and Harrow did that thing where she looked through Gideon's eyes. Using their combined powers, Harrow recreates the key using a bone fragment and they go inside the laboratory. I really enjoy it at the time when Gideon's like, I know it's got like pointy things or something. Like, like, oh, just give us your eyes. It looks like <laughs> a key? I don't know. It's about this big, looks like a key. Inside, they discuss. Oh, I'm, uh, um, Harrow recreates the key using a bone fragment and they go inside the laboratory. So, inside, they discuss the trial that led there, which was just a tooth and a box. The tooth was from one of the skeleton servants. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that they realise that the skeletons are revenants and that teacher has been around for a very long time and is himself a beguiling corpse. Ooh. As soon as they discover this, a fire alarm goes off. They all run and find the cause of the alarm. All the skeletons are collapsing, including the cooks in the kitchen mid-meal prep. So the kitchen is on fire. There are piles of bones all over the place, and they decide to go and check on Dulcinea and teach her, but he's not there with her, and the priest who is with her is dead. Casual murder. They go to find Teacher, and when they do, it's not good. The second house went to call for aid and killed him, but then, like, he killed them as well, maybe trying to stop them. The sixth and the ninth realize Teacher was a shell and controlling all the skeletons, so when he died, all of them died. Also, they learn from the second that help isn't coming. The emperor is. Oh, dang! Teacher gurgles to life a little bit to lament the fact that the emperor is coming back to a place he must not return to. And then he says, Oh, Lord, 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 one of them has come back. Which can't be good. Whatever it means. <laughs> no death gurgle. Uh, death gurgle lamentation has ever been good. Yeah. The ninth and the sixth leave the second and teacher and are met by the eighth who have bad news. <laughs> More. <laughs> Which, coming from them, has got to be really bad. 
they say that the fifth has been defiled. I love the word defiled, by the way. At the morgue, they find that Abigail's belly has been cut open because there was a key inside her. Someone must have really wanted to keep that key safe. Before they leave the morgue, they go to check out the ashes that were found in the furnace. Some of them belong to Prestelius. Some belong to someone else, but no one knows who that is. They decide they'll figure out that later because uh, keeping everyone else alive is more important right now. There's so few. <laughs> and is it more important? Is it? I don't know. They're, they're probably called beguiling corpses at this point. <sighs> they go to the door locked by the belly key and find Ianthe, Corona Beth, and the body of Nabirius inside. And a note, you lied to us, scrawled on the wall, which Palamides goes to investigate. Coronabeth is crying in the corner while Ianthe is glowing from the inside out, her eyes changing color and her body all shifty and jittery. Ianthe has become a lictor. She completed all the trials and learned the Megatherum from them without gaining any keys or entering any laboratories except the one that they're in right now. She killed Nabirius's body and took his soul inside herself, which is how lictors are made. They have to eat their cavaliers. She reveals all this to the ninth, sixth, and eighth houses, and also tells them that she's the best necromancer because she's been two necromancers since she was a kid because Corona Beth has no power. And so, and they've been faking for all their lives. Silas of the eighth tries to fight her, but she uses Nabirius's skill to fight him back. Then, Colum begins to siphon, trying to drain Ianthe's energy, but that doesn't work, and she kills both of them, tells the others that there are worse things than her in Canaan House, then disappears into a puddle of blood. Oh. That's classy. That's a classy word exit. Gideon checks on Corona Beth who isn't crying because Ianthe killed and absorbed Nabirius. She's crying because she didn't kill and absorb her. Priorities. Also, you're n- not a cavalier. You're not anything, Corona Beth. You kind of suck. Corona Beth, you're basic. Ah, <laughs> oh, she's a basic bitch. She's a basic bitch. Gideon, Harold, Camilla notice that Palamedes is no longer with them and assume he's gone off to see Dulcinea. Camilla tells Gideon and Harold that the two of them have been exchanging letters for the past 12 years. The ninth finds this interesting because Dulcinea, to them, seemed to barely know Palamedes and treated him like a stranger. Gideon feels terrible because she was horning in on Palamedes' girl, so she rushes off to apologise to him. She finds him outside Dulcinea's room, but then she's frozen in place. Palamedes goes inside and asks Dulcinea where Dulcinea is. Wait, what? (laughs) Palamedes, having written to Dulcinea for years and years, has realised that this person 
in this sickbed is not Dulcinea at all. He's right. His Dulcinea is the other body in the furnace. Oh! This person is also from the seventh house and has the same sickness as Dulcinea, but she's had it for tens of thousands of years. Wow, she's old. Yeah. She's a lictor, and she's come back to Canaan House to lure the emperor there to kill him. She made sure to kill everyone else there, too, because the emperor would have used any newly created lictors to kill her. But now he's got to come here. Palamides, knowing that his Dulcinea is dead, uses his necromancy abilities to supercharge this stranger's illness, tells Gideon to tell Camilla, then explodes himself and the room that they're in like a star. Gideon runs away as the room explodes, but is followed by the stranger who is not injured at all, minus the cancer. She tells Gideon that she is called Kitharea the First, necromancer and cavalier, and she's got to kill everyone there so then she can kill the emperor. And she's starting with Gideon. Fuck! More casual murder. This isn't very casual anymore. Intentional murder. Intentional. Except Camilla is also there. And she tackles Kitharia, the fight, nastily. And then the giant construct monster arrives and begins attacking too. Harrow joins the fray, gives Gideon her longsword, which they snuck here, even though as a cavalier she's supposed to use a rapier. And using a regenerated bone technique she learned with the help of Gideon's body, like they did in the first trial, pins the construct in place. Camilla and Kitharia are still fighting and it's not going well for Camilla. But Ianthea also joins the battle. She and Kitharia fight for a while and both being lictors could probably literally fight forever. But then Kitharia starts siphoning Ianthea's energy away and healing herself with it. Which is dirty, dirty cheating if you ask me. I hate it when they do that in video games. So Harold <laughs> builds a bone shield around herself, Gideon and Camilla. They pretty much resign themselves to die. But then Gideon tells Harold that, even though she's not really a cavalier, her life is Harold's. Harold tells her that she's the best cavalier the Ninth House has ever produced. And then Gideon impales herself on an iron spike. Bloody hell! Gideon comes to inside of Harold, who is now a lictor. Working together, they grab Gideon's longsword, easily destroy the construct, and then attack and kill Kitharia. Harrow wakes later in space with the Emperor. She asks him to return Gideon's soul to her body, but he can't do that without killing both of them. She asks how many survived Canaan House, and he says only Ianthe, who's missing an arm. He could not find any other bodies. He apologizes for Harrow having to become a lictor in order to kill Kitharea and asks Harrow to join him and fight with him. 
he also offers her the chance to return home if she would rather do that. She wouldn't. She kneels before the Emperor and rises as Harrow the First. <laughs> wow. 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 Okay. Everyone, take a second to process all of that because a lot of stuff just happened in that, like, one paragraph. So you process that and listen to this promo from another show. What's up, fellow book nerds? It's time to feed your fiction shelf addiction. Hear book club style roundtables, bookish chats, and more. Join Tamara and her friends for fantasy and thriller read-alongs and other shenanigans over on the Shelf Addiction Podcast. Listen now on your podcatcher of choice. Subscribe for free and you too can have a shelf addiction. I don't know how to explain everything that I love about this book. I appreciate the swearing. Point one. There's so much swearing. All the swears. Yeah. So much swearing. And the Gideonisms. Yes. There's lots of good puns in this book as yes. well. I think it's probably one of my favourite things. Is It's our sense of humour. It really like, it's is. It's dry, it's dark, it's sarcastic. Yeah. It's full of puns, full of cussing. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I also like when when does this take place? Because like it seems it seems like it's really really far in the future, but like not futuristic at all, which I love. But like when they get. When they first arrive at the first house, they first get to Canaan House, they get off their shuttle, and, like, I can only imagine that they're, like, really close to the sun. Because it's very, very bright. And (laughs) Gideon's like, look what I found. And she pulls out these dusty fucking old aviator sunglasses. (laughs) Next what titty mags. Right? She's got her titty magazines, and she's got her aviator sunglasses that she found and also in that laboratory that they discovered there's like an electric toothbrush in there and they're like oh look at this old old thing look at this old toothbrush but it's, i feel like it's set in a medieval castle with drywall I, it's a big mix of i feel like modern like past. time it's, has like come back upon itself it's Star Wars universe, okay? In a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So it's set in the past, but the technology is more advanced than what we have, essentially. But they also fight with swords. Yeah. It's it's 40k. It's Warhammer. Right? This is the nerd. It's Warhammer 40k law. Where they're going around, they've got an emperor who they will all die for. There's necromancy, there's magic, 
There's skeletons, corpses, diseases everywhere. Everyone's fine with a sword or a blaster. Some of them have got blasters. It's for, Warhammer 40k. That's fine. God damn it. I love it. I do not like Warhammer 40k. I don't. I don't like round bases. I like square bases for fantasy. I'm a fantasy girl at heart. I don't care about that. I don't care about Warhammer. But you know what I love? Necromancers. We've been playing... Oh, necromancers. <laughs> we have been playing um, Diablo a lot. Yes. And my character is a necromancer. So I'm like... Of course. Yes! And my powers, the way that I've chosen to, like, power my necromancer is with skeletons. So I've, of course. I've got, like... 12 skeletons running around me all the time <laughs> and it's just chaos and there's skeletons have you called everywhere. yourself harold no you haven't called yourself harold the first i'm gonna be very no upset. because i i mean we started playing this game i don't know how long before we read this book Fair so enough, i'll let you off yeah but if you started again if we start uh, over oh, any and all future necromancers need to be called harold the first yeah that's fine yeah I, I adored the mix of sci-fi and fantasy. And yeah. It's it's refreshing not to just be in one niche. Yes. Genre. I love it. And so it's it's good sci-fi. It's good fantasy, which two genres I freaking mm-hmm. love, mixed with puns, swearing, dark, sarcastic humor, and lesbians, casual murder, gears doing crime. Fucking love this. What is not to love? I don't know. Also, it's got a fucking awesome narrator, as we said before. Oh, Moira Quirk. We love Moira Quirk. love her so much. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? I will say at times, because Moira Quirk's obviously doing uh, Miss Gale books mm-hmm. as well, some of the humour was actually very Miss Gale on point. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's that kind of, having that kind of relation kind of made me think, ah, hang on. I, and I got confused a couple of times going, am I listening to my book? Um, yeah, because then it like says about... fuck a whole lot. And you're like, oh, wait, that's not a oh, miscale. Yeah, that's not yeah, a miscale. Yeah, it's not a miscale. Yeah. I think it's like when when Dulcinea is particularly like being all floppy and, oh, I'm so ill. Well, who you think is Dulcinea at the time. Right. Um, you know, it's those casual, more casual, more feminine moments, softer moments. Mm-hmm. Um. And also totally expect all the lesbians in Miss Gale right, books. So it had that kind of element. So it's like if you want if you enjoy Gail Carragher mm-hmm. but you want to go into a bit more of a But you need more violent murder. You need more casual murder. <laughs> yes. In space uh-huh. try this book. Bearing in mind as well that if you like Gail Carragher, you've probably read her sci-fi as well. Yeah, probably. So she's like just a more swear. It's probably a more sweary yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, probably. Speaking. I. So if you like Gail Carragher, read this. Yeah, really. Um, I like to describe this book because a couple of people had asked me, you know, working in the library, everyone's like, oh, you know, what are you reading right now? Gideon the Ninth. What is that about? Uh, lesbian necromancers in space. Yes, lesbian necromancers in space. There it is. Love it. Love yeah. it. I loved every single thing about this book. It it's this is like a hard one for 
probably for us to discuss because we both love it so much. I, I, I think it took me the longest to listen to it because I came to it a bit later and then I had to take a break to do some summaries. Mm-hmm. Have to have to prioritize the current episodes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, but yeah, I was just so excited, just so excited to read it, and it was just so good. And I remember you were saying, "Have you finished it yet? Have you finished it?" Yet? No, I'm having to do this summary. I know. Ah. I was really worried, like earlier this week you still hadn't finished it and i was like oh my god oh my god are we going to be able to record because you haven't finished the book yet you know because it's nine thousand pages long it's 21 hours long like are you are you done yet you're like no i'm 53 percent of the way through i'm like oh my god you haven't even gotten to any of the important stuff yet i know (laughs) i i will admit i i did have to you know up the, the the speed to get it done because it is a long audiobook. But if there's one thing I can guarantee on Fictional Hangover, we will both have read the book. Yes. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's it's a guarantee. Even if and there have been very, very, very rare occasions on the day of recording, one of us has just finished yeah. the book. But we will have both finished the but book. But we will have read yes. it. Guaranteed. But you know, can I just say, if we haven't read the book, the other one has already written the summary, and it's a great summary. So we could fake it if we needed to, but we've never had to do that. No, and I guarantee you will never, never will. will. No. no, we won't do that. We, we pick books that 99% of the time we are wanting to read either you know to one degree or another yes. it might be one that the other one's picked a bit yes. more but to one degree or another we we want to read these yes. books even if they sound absolutely dreadful which are probably the ones who will like them probably <laughs> yeah or but no this one i needed to read this one it's just like i said it's so my bag good yeah. sci-fi good fantasy sarcasm casual murder lesbian wreck romances in space it's so good like i don't even i don't i liked almost all of the characters too and there were so many of them which i i you said it at the very beginning you're like oh there's so many like there's so many names and you get them all confused and it took me probably like 60 percent of the book to understand who who was who yeah there is a big cast of characters uh, i mean i'm not saying that it's a bad thing no. and i'm not saying it as a criticism just a point of order yeah, there's just in a our discussion that there was so many characters that it could get confusing and especially like names yeah this this is the this is the tolkien if you read the book you're going to suffer the tolkien name problem yeah. where you read it and you don't know how to pronounce it <coughs> Well, that's. I did listen to it, but I had to listen to it at stupid speed. So actually, yeah. you know, the, a lot of the pronunciations have gone over my head yeah. as well. Um, and I think some, my biggest criticism is with books where I don't know how to say the names consistently when I'm reading. Also, but that's a that's a sci-fi fantasy yeah. thing. <clears throat> and as much as I'm like, oh, if it it's a frustration, but it's a frustration on my part and it's not a reflection on the writing or the author yeah. or the name choices. Yeah. It took me a while. And this is a summary that I wrote, obviously, because you 
hadn't read the book yet. Um, I, In all fairness, I was meant to, but then we did some swaps. We did some swaps and you were like, I don't think I can handle this one right now. And I was like, it's <laughs> fine. I'll get it. I got this. And then I started summarizing right then. And that was like two months ago. Anyway, um, I tried to leave out a lot of their names for as much as I could, for as long as I could. But then it got to the important bits. And then I couldn't, I, I had, we had to include both names. We had to say Palamides and we had to say Protesilalos because those were two very important characters. And then <laughs> Protesilaus lost his head. And then you find it in the closet. And then there's ashes in the incinerator. And you're like, who do these ashes belong to? Well, I have to include their names. <laughs> there was a no, lot. It's fine. I mean, but there's eight it's houses like, I think that are participating. With... So there's 16 characters plus a, an extra one because there was a twins in one of them plus teacher plus teacher flashback characters like parents i glaminate and crux at the very beginning like it's a lot there's a lot and oh and and, and then people who aren't the people that the say the being yes there's yes it's a lot Kitharea at the end all of a sudden and you're like well, what what <laughs> i would even go so far to say though that there's so much in the first book, it could have been split into a couple. Potentially. But I loved it. I don't know. I like it. I like it how it is. It, um, oh, no, I agree. And I think it needs to be one continuous story. What, do you, do you, was it the Green Mile? Stephen King's Green Mile was done in a series of chapters. Like, short, it was released little bit by little bit. It was drip fed. I'm I don't sure know. I didn't read that one. That's not my type of Stephen King. I can't remember. That's not the Stephen King. It was one of them. It was like it was drip thread, little bit by little bit, and I've read books where they've just given you short bits, like a quarter of the book, and it really keeps you going. Like you, you get your teeth into it, and you're like suddenly cliffhanger, cliffhanger, and it's it's really satisfying to have that where it's such an you get so involved with the story and the big cast of characters but you don't get the full story straight off the bat yeah and you've got to be drip fed it and it's like it, it it makes it into a bit of a serial and it is a very interesting way format to do it very few books do it but yeah i enjoy it but yes the names are confusing but like i say it's more on me because i struggle with those names than on the reflection of the book it fit perfectly. Yes. Yeah. I don't... How? How, though, that person at the beginning of the... You, you mentioned in the background information, like, oh, they were friends. No. No. My God, that lesbian tension was amazing. Loved yes. it. You, just, you spend the entire time just going, please, just, 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 just fuck. Just fuck. But then they can't, because then Gideon impales herself at the end and then is absorbed <laughs> that is probably the biggest surprise for me is that that happened because Gideon is such a good character and I'm like yes yeah. I am in for this series because I'm going to have Gideon the entire time which Gideon is probably somehow going to come back I don't know I haven't read the rest of them 
But I imagine... Want to. Gideon's got to be involved somehow. She's too good. I think Gideon's going to be the voice inside Harold's head. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Also, something that I learned looking for background info, because, like you said, this one has been out for a little while. I mean, it's not too terribly old. It came out in, like, 2019. But since it has been out for a while and books two and three have, you know, have also come out and there's a fourth Mm -hmm. that will be coming out soon. A lot of the background info I found, like, kind of was talking about all of them. And I learned that there's a lot of memes written into Harrow. The second one is is called Harrow the Ninth. There's a lot of memes written into it. So I'm like, oh, my God. She's writing... Holy pop culture reference. What? So I'm going to have to read. I'm going to have to continue reading them. Yeah, I need to read the rest of these. Damn. Damn. It's just so good. The sarcasm is probably my favorite bit. Yeah. It's just so funny and so dry and so ridiculous. I I annoyed Colin because I kept I was listening to it and you know we're listening it into bed and he's reading his book and I'm going listen 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 this and I'm having it take my earphones out backtrack slow it down because he doesn't listen as fast as yeah. I do and go no 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 this bit and he's laughing but I just did that so many times I was like I think you should just read it he went I will Claire don't worry I will. It's just so good. I just—I feel like I'm having a repoo discussion because I just want to go. It's I know, it's I know. It's difficult. This book, and also a lot of stuff happened. It reminds me so much of Fourth Wing, or I should say, Fourth Wing reminds me of Gideon the Ninth because Gideon the Ninth came first. Um, like this, like the sense of humor, the dry mm-hmm. wit. Mm-hmm. Um, the sexual tension. Yes. The very strong female who, you know, she knows her own mind. Yes. Um, you know, this the sense of self-sacrifice. You know, there's a lot of those common factors. Yes. So, you, again, like, if you liked this, you will like the fourth... you like fourth wing. Yes. Um, so go and see. Go back. Listen to our fourth wing episode. Which was last month's book club? Yes. Episode. Yes. It's on YouTube. You can watch us be silly. Um, oh, that's going to be this one too, and... then, isn't it? Oh no! Oh, our skeleton faces. <laughs> now I look like I have a goatee. <laughs> I think mine's starting to melt off a little bit as well. I'm, I'm uh, battle. I feel like I that. look like a professional wrestler from the eighties. Or like that I should join KISS or Oh, what's the wrestler who does... I can't remember who the wrestler who does have the face paint on there. I don't know. I don't know. It's ridiculous. I feel like we need to try to talk about this book a little bit more. Since this is the one that everyone gets to watch and experience. Quit looking up that wrestler. We're supposed to be having a conversation right now. You talk. People can see. <laughs> I will talk about my favorite character then. I liked 
Palamides of the sixth house, I think most because he's like a nerd and he's wearing glasses and like investigating murders and also doing medical things and also not knowing how to describe a key. And I also really liked Jean-Marie from the fourth Mm. house, but that's because of Gail Carriger and Moira Quirk. She felt like yes. a spoo to me. She felt like a Viev to me. She's Oh, definitely Viev energy. You no, know, she's like a 14-year-old cavalier. She's sassy. And then she got murdered. So she got bone speared. Oh, casually bone speared. I quite enjoyed Teacher because Teacher was sarcastic and was like, ah! I don't know. Go find out yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not your, a your teacher. Huh? I don't know. Just wander around the place, being all old and stuff. Um, I kind of liked. Well, she turns out not to be Dulcinea. Katha, um, Kitharia. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so weak and feeble. Oh, I'm so yeah, bitch. I'm ten thousand years old. Yeah, but she's still she's sick. Now. She's still very ill. But then that... That absolutely sucks. But that makes her a more powerful necromancer because she's constantly dying. So she's got that dead energy going on, which, like, has a technical name in the book, but I didn't write it into the summary because then it would have just been entirely too confusing. But she's got this... I think it's called Thanergy that she just keeps draining from herself. So she's, like, a complete badass. But no, I'm laying out... On the veranda, reading my romance novels. <laughs> Which you know is a Gail Carrig, I'm oh, telling you right I'm sure now. It she's is. reading Gail Carrig books. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. And I'm going to have to say Gideon. I know we don't tend to go for the, the lead, but yeah. You can't not love Gideon. Do you know what I really enjoyed? What? Harrow was born because 200 children's souls was sacrificed yeah that's like bloody hell yeah and like what is that gonna mean later and also how why didn't Gideon die this is something that I I found puzzling and that I can't believe that Gideon is dead at the end because she didn't die when she was poisoned she didn't die or have anything negative happen to her after Harrow went through the trial where she was siphoning her life energy. Uh-huh. Nothing happened to her. And Camilla and Palamides were like, uh, y- you should probs be dead right now. <laughs> like, there's some, this, which is why I don't believe she is gone, gone. Yeah. And then there was also that note that she found in the lab that had her name on, but it's in. You know, the laboratory with the ancient electric toothbrush. So is she like... Is that her ancient electric toothbrush? Yeah, like what... Does the note say, don't don't forget to charge? I don't know. I don't know. It's very confusing. And I'm sure other people who have read the entire series are like, ha ha ha, you're so stupid. Oh my god, this is what's happening. Like, But we've only read the first one. Stop mocking us. Do you want us to commit casual murder? Probably. It's time. 
I guess. I feel like we haven't even talked about the book at all, but also we're... Oh, 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 we need to talk about the Battle Royale. Oh, yes, we do. We do. All of the necromancers... No, excuse me. All of the cavaliers are fighting each other at the same time. Take Gideon out. I feel like... No! I feel like we want Gideon to win. So no matter what, we will make Gideon the winner. Who's going to win the fight? None of them. They're all just going to kill each other? They will all kill each other. <sighs> if if anybody would be like come out as the quote-unquote victor, they would, would make it out of the, the arena. They would die yeah. of the wounds. They just, they, they've all got such unique talents yes. of casual murder yes. in different ways yes. that I honestly can't see who would come out the victor yeah like Niberius was a good fighter mm. I feel like um and also like I don't I can't remember which one's which you know like Jean-Marie and Isaac I think Jean-Marie was the cavalier so she was also pretty feisty and then like, the two from the second house, like, I think they only got their names mentioned, like, once. So, I don't even know. One of them's called Judith, and the other one is called something else. And I don't know, mm. but they were pretty... Marta. Judith and Marta. They were pretty, like, tough and rule followy. So... I think the Beerus would come out the victor, but he would take um, mortal wounds. I think, but he's too cocky because he's too cocky. A fighter. Yeah. I think. I think Camilla was pretty badass as well. Camilla might oh, be a well, winner. Yeah, actually, you know, you mentioned Camilla. Yeah, they're all very good. It's hard to say. You can't become the house cavalier and not be good at. Unless you're Gideon and you're not the house uh, cavalier. But she's still good at fighting. Yeah. All right. Let's have some pew-pews. Let's get to Would You Rather. This is a good segue right here. Right into a battle question. We asked on social media. Would you rather fight with a two-handed sword or a single sword and small off-handed weapon? On Facebook, 80% are using a single sword and small offhand. On Instagram, 56% are using the small offhand weapon with single sword. And on TikTok, 60% are using the single sword with small offhand weapon. There now. Drew on Facebook said, I don't think I have the upper body power for a two-handed sword. Coral on Facebook said, I would think two swords are better than one if you have that hand coordination to use them. Colin on Facebook said, I prefer two weapons so I can block with one hand and make with the stabby with the other. I'm thinking sword and dagger to maximise the stabbiness. Bree on Facebook says, as a former drummer, I feel more confident with two hands than a giant kill stick. <laughs> Glim Glam Jen on Instagram said, My sword is lightweight and dyed a deep purple with glitter sparkles. It matches my smaller weapon always held in the left hand. But what is it? A taser! 
a purple sparkle teaser. Fight me, you punk. Come on, fight me, you punk. And finally, Carl on TikTok says, all right, if there's skeletons, that means little stabbies aren't going to do shit. I need the slamming power of a claymore. And then there's more words in parentheses that... Claymore don't lie. I looked it up. Okay. So we only have one comment that is using a slamming two-handed sword. Broadswords are freaking heavy. I mean, having held a few, not to actual weaponize, but you know, I live in the UK. We have lots of castles. They have swords. Um, they're heavy and they're big. Yeah. I feel like... Some of them are taller than me. I feel like... And I mean, I'm not particularly tall, but still. I mean, I have a really big sword that I made over here. Let me see if I can grab it. Let me see if I can reach it. Here, let's just start here. This is my giant sword that I made. I mean, it's a comical anime sword, but still, it's not real. No, it's made of foam, so it's super lightweight. It's giant. But no. You're not going to buy... Your, <laughs> your murderous, badass sloth persona um, would suit it right now. I don't know, because I'm super 80s. I'm a super 80s hairband sort of sloth. Um, I... In, in every video game that I ever play, I always use dual blades because they're fast. I like to be fast. I like to get in close. I like to do a lot of stabbies. And then I like to run away. So I have to use two-handed. Two hands, each wielding a weapon, not a two-handed yeah, sword. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick two hands as well just because I don't have, like Drew said, the strength for a two-handed sword. They are built for a certain physique yeah it's not my physique i would rather i guess i should just move on and ask the answer or ask the next question would you rather be a cavalier or a necromancer because i'd rather uh, just be a necromancer necromancer this is a non-question let's move on thank you <laughs> but i'll still do you know the cool look. well yeah of course which brings us to our next question Would you rather your aesthetic be school face paint and sunglasses or gauzy and delicate wafting clothes? Well, my my response to you is, of course, both. One is my daytime, one is my nighttime. You will see see me in my full face paint aesthetic with sunglasses kicking your arse during the day. Uh But at nighttime, I'm going to go wafting through the halls. Now, see... I'm going to say both, but at the same time. So I've got my face paint on, but then I'm also wearing gauzy wafting clothes. But of course, they're going to be black. So they'll go with my face paint. They'll go with that vibe. But I want to trail like some wafty, gauzy black fabric behind me while I'm summoning skeletons all over the place. Our next question didn't really get into this a lot in the book you can i mean in the summary you can see it happening as you're reading the book but there's three different types of necromantic magic 
So which one would you rather have? There's flesh magic, which includes things like blood travel and blood shields and beguiling corpses. There's spirit magic, which includes summoning and talking to spirits and siphoning souls. And there's bone magic, which includes raising and crafting skeletons, constructs, and bone shields. What are you picking? Oh, they all, so, all sound so amazing, though. Uh, why do I have to pick? I don't I want spirit magic. That's the only one I'm like the least inclined to pick. I'm I'm debating between flesh and bone. Yeah. If you pick flesh, I'll take bone. Okay. And then we can put on our face paint, sunglasses, mm-hmm. gauzy wafting clothes, and we can just perform necromancy together yeah. with some necromantic breeze wafting us around and making us look amazing. Okay. I guess I can handle that. Because I, I really... If you prefer bone, I'll take flesh. No, see, but that's not, that's not it. Because, like, while I am currently, like I said, playing Diablo, and I am a necromancer, and I have all my bone skeletons, and I'm throwing bone shards all over the place, I just think, remember that beautiful cosplay that I did, (laughs) where I was covered in blood, and, like, just thinking about blood travel, and... Jay Kristoff and footnotes. I just, I love, oh, I don't know. I love both just of them. Just went to a cosplay happy place. I did. I love both of them. So you can have bones and I'll take the blood. Cool. And then we'll both learn spirit and then we'll sort it. All right. Last question. Would you rather, well, it's easy to say, which necromancer and cavalier team would you rather spend time with? Gideon and Harrow, Silas and Colum, Dulcinea and Prostelius, Camilla and Palamedes, Jean-Marie and Isaac, Anthea and Cronabeth and Iberius, or Judith and Marta? And the one set of team who have names that's easy to say are never mentioned. Who? Oh, Judith and Marta? Judith and yeah. Marta. Yeah, no one cares about Judith and Marta from the second house. Fuck them. Well, I feel like it's... I mean... It's unfair to say Gideon and Harrow, because that's who we spent the most time with. Camilla and Palamides for me. Yeah, I do like Camilla and Palamides. I like Dulcinea and Protesilaus because I like that Dulcinea is just resting and reading romance novels all the time so like i could get with that i wouldn't be reading romance novels but i would. you would you would probably do some wafting i'm surprised that you didn't pick dulcinea i don't know i couldn't be asked with her complaining about being ill all the mm. time which sounds really callous and and awful but it's like the same in um annie's um Jane Austen book club that she's got the uh, Jane Austen uh, read along where there's a character that is constantly going oh I'm I'm the ills of my life and oh I'm not long for this world and they're just overly dramatic Mm. with it and I'm like I've got very little patience for it Mm. if you're genuinely ill fine but if you're not 
stop being a hypochondriac. <laughs> and I, that's coming across a lot more callous than I, I intended to, to mean. So I apologise if I offend anybody. I think... I think that I might pick Jean-Marie and Isaac because, you know, everyone knows that I miss being a teen librarian more than anything. And I would just love to hang out with them and teach them things. They're young. They're eager to learn stuff. They also think that, you know, if I'm speaking of myself as Gideon right now, that I have some really nice biceps. So, I would probably pick oh, them. Oh, to have nice biceps. I know. I got noodle arms. I've, I've got bingo wings. <laughs> okay. That brings us to the end of Would You Rather. That was a lot shorter than last week. What? Well, last week we had a guest. And we played Would You Rather for, I'm pretty sure, 45 minutes. <laughs> It was a good picture. It was everything about everything it. about last week's episode was amazing. I saw a traffic cone the other day and started <laughs> laughing my head off. I thought about trying to borrow some traffic cones from the library, and then I thought, no, nah, if anyone sees me posing wearing sexy traffic cone costume, like I would probably get fired. <laughs> so I'm not gonna do that. Um, Fair. Yeah. Anyway. Let's move on to favorite final thought quote. There's so many. There's so many. Restricting it down so we're not, you know, breaking copyright okay. laws. Am I being a creep? <laughs> but Gideon was experiencing one powerful emotion being sick of everyone's shit. I had that one selected as well that's a good one if my heart had a dick you would kick it (laughs) now we kick her ass until candy comes out (laughs) see you on the flip side sugar lips (laughs) every single one of mine I think is Gideon right what have you got they're so good they're so good okay In any case, both she and Harrowhawk turned up, gorgeously gowned in their locked tomb vestments, painted like living skulls, looking like douchebags. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's one of the first things that I said to you. Like, oh my god, they're saying douchebags. I think it was, actually. I'm pretty sure I sent you that quote. I don't want a bunch of synonyms, you smarmy cloud-looking motherfucker. synonyms are basically my employment thank you very much oh I also really appreciate why was I born so attractive (laughs) and finally my last two favorites one flesh one end bitch and we do bones, motherfucker. <laughs> we do bones. <sighs> motherfucker. Love it. Love we it. do bones, motherfucker. Okay. 
If you liked this, try this. I know that we've already mentioned several, several things that we would recommend if you liked this, yes. try there this. There is a Book Riot list as well. Books like Gideon the Ninth as well. Yeah, so check that out. But I feel out. like, you know, Nevernight by Jay Kristoff is a good one. Yes, perfect. Like, I mean, Fourth Wing we talked about. Everything by Gail Carriger we talked about. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, do we need to go for any more? Or I mean, I feel we... like we should share some other things that we haven't talked about already on the podcast. Well, okay. I'm going to recommend one that I haven't read yet, but I, I read the summary and I really enjoyed it. And it was from the, the Book Riot list of books I get in Okay. That's where I got mine and too, called... I think. It's called The Monster of Eldenhaven by Jennifer Geisbrecht. If you're looking for more creepy magical events and problematic relationships, you're in the right place. This gothic grotesquerie is about a town called Eldenhaven, which seems to be on a black moon after the North Pole split in two. Johan is a lanky monster man who has come out of the sea and he gets his kicks murdering people. That line sold yep. me to, sold yep. to me because I thought Amanda's going to love yep. that. I almost picked that one, actually. Oh, cool. But then he teams up with a fragile magician who also has revenge on his mind. It means they can double the destruction. I love the fact it sounds like we are rooting for the bad guys uh, again. Yeah, of course we are. And male protagonists as well. Yeah, who's a lanky monster man. like <laughs> From the sea. What? Uh, what have you got? Okay, um, so the one that I selected is The Murders of Molly Southbourne by Tade Thompson. Every time she bleeds, a murderer is born. Hey, the end. Don't even know. <laughs> the rule is simple. Don't bleed. <laughs> For as long as Molly Southbourne can remember, she's been watching herself die. Whenever she bleeds, another Molly is born, identical to her in every way and intent on her destruction. Molly knows every way to kill herself, but she also knows that as long as she survives, she'll be hunted. No matter how well she follows the rules, eventually the Mollies will find her. Can Molly find a way to stop the tide of blood, or will she meet her end at the hand of a girl who looks just like her? Ooh. Every time she bleeds, a murderer is born. Love it. Love it. Love it. Amazing. Um, we've got to have a new orange spotlight that's going to give us some vibes. We do. Yes, we actually just got this one. It comes out in January. It's called Sons of Darkness by Gaurav Mohanty. And this one was pitched to us as like Game of Thronesy. So here's the summary. Bled dry by violent confrontations with the Mahagdan Empire, the Mathuran Republic simmers on the brink of oblivion. Krishna and Satabama have put their plans in motion within and beyond the Republic's blood-soaked borders to protect it from annihilation. But they will soon discover that neither gold nor alliances last forever. They are, however, not alone in this game. Mati, 
pirate princess of Kalinga, has decided to mend her ways to become a good wife. But old habits die hard, especially when one habitually uses murder to settle old scores. Brooding but beautiful Karna hopes to bury his brutal past, but finds that destiny is a miser when it comes to giving second chances. The crippled hero-turned-torturer, Shakuni, limps through the path of daggers that is politics, only to find his foes multiply, leaving little time for vengeance. Their lives are about to become very difficult for a cast of sinister queens, naive kings, pious assassins, and ravenous priests are converging where the sun of darkness is prophesied to rise, even as forgotten gods prepare to play their hand. So it sounds like there's a large cast of characters. There's lots of murder, some vengeance, some gore probably thrown in i think it sounds fantastic it does it sounds very fun okay that's it for this episode of fictional hangover i'm amanda and i'm claire the ninth (laughs) (laughs) join us next time live (gasps) on sunday october 29th at 2.30 p.m. Central, 7.30 p.m. GMT, as we discuss several short stories from A Taste of Darkness, featuring authors Amy McCall, Don Kurtigich, Kat Ellis, and Rosie Talbot, and probably some fantastic Halloween costumes as well. Should probably get on to that. Look out for our Would You Rather polls on social media. Don't forget about our book club and monthly challenges on Facebook. Be sure to visit our shop on Redbubble at fictionalhangover.redbubble.com for all your favorite fictional hangover-themed merchandise. And become a patron of ours on Patreon at patreon.com slash fictionalhangover. Until next time, remember, the only cure for a fictional hangover is another book. You can find us at fictionalhangover.com. Follow us on Instagram, threads, TikTok, and YouTube at fictionalhangover. And find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fictionalhangover. If you like this episode, check out our others and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out. And finally, special thanks to Liz Emerson for our music. You can find her on Facebook and Patreon. Thanks for listening.